Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the chapter that we're looking at, Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Verse 16. I wonder if any of you thought last week that um, when I said Amen that we've seen the last of this verse. Uh, We've been dealing with it now uh, for a number of Thursday nights. To me it gets more intense every time you look at it. It's a challenge. It's a massive challenge to us and I wouldn't blame you if you you wanted it to be a thing in the past. I am ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And um, I suppose that progress is a good thing. To get away from that verse and go off into other things that uh, the book of Romans would bring to us. But um, there is one little phrase left for us to look at. And it's a little phrase that I can't... I couldn't move on from uh, this verse until we actually looked at it to get out of my system, I suppose. And it's the last one. It says... For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For the Jew first, but also for the Greek. Now, over the last few Thursdays, we've noticed that Paul has given us a number of reasons why we should never be found ashamed of the Gospel. And if you can cast our minds back, uh, a number of the reasons, I won't give you them all, because we've dealt with them all, but the reason that we shouldn't be ashamed is because the Gospel is actually that. It's good news. It's good news. And who was ever ashamed of good news? Uh, and whoever kept good news to themselves? And the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he has brought from us to us. Of course, then we looked at the source. The source of this gospel is Christ. It's the gospel of Christ. And he is the one to whom we all aspire. We all gather. We gather in his name. He becomes our head. He is the one that we long to be like. And therefore the gospel, the good news, should never be something to be ashamed of because its source is found in Christ. And therefore it should be something that should be forever upon our lips. Also we saw that it is the power of God. You know, when we think of power and what power can do and what power can move and what power can change in everyday life and then we put that word in of God the power of God you know we're looking now at creation the power of God has brought everything into being all other power depends upon the power of God but we know that this is a special power the power that can save souls and bring people who are lost, who are dead in sins, into a living relationship with Him. That's the power of God. And then we looked at the outcome. The outcome is salvation. Deliverance from sin, from the guilt of sin, from the power of sin, from the presence of sin. And then last of all, we saw the trigger. The trigger of the gospel is faith. We talked last week about to those who believe. To those who believe. David uh, quoted John 3.16 in his prayer. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But whoever believes, whoever believes, and we saw last week that it it is important that faith uh, is born when the word of God is preached like that. But what about this last phrase then? This last reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. Is it that? Is it a reason? Or is it just a throwaway remark by Paul? Now, by the time we get to the end of chapter 2, we will have come across this phrase no less than three times. Paul uses this phrase once in chapter 1, in verse 16, and he also uses it twice in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Now, I don't think uh, three mentions in two chapters we could ever call it a throwaway remark. And that's the reason why, you know, you're tempted. You're tempted, or what can you get out of that? You're tempted to sort of pass over. And I've got to be honest, I don't think anyone would have noticed 
if he'd gone on to verse 17 because verse 17 uh, is a big one again for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written the just shall live by faith what an amazing verse to get into and I don't suppose anyone would have gone you haven't said about those words at the end of verse 16 but when I look at this passage this, this little phrase I can see that it's a recurring theme throughout the whole of the New Testament even Christ himself brings it up can you remember when he sent his disciples out on their first sort of um, mission into the world give them power over demons and this that and the other and this is what he says in Matthew chapter 10 these twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them saying do not go into the way of the Gentiles nor enter a city of the Samaritans but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel you, and you will notice that Jesus says that on quite a number of times that he hadn't come for the Gentiles he had come for the house of Israel you know and we had a, a fabulous time here on Monday um, and uh, the preacher talked about the Syrophician woman from Tyre and Sidon the one who uh, was a Canaanite and she came up to Jesus and said my daughter is demon possessed can you, can you do something now you listen to this and you think if this is Jesus because sometimes I do wonder uh, you know, if we ever know, if we really know him listen to this Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon and behold a woman of Cana came from that region and cried out unto him saying have mercy on me O Lord son of David my daughter is severely demon possessed but he answered not a word he ignored her Jesus my Jesus he ignored this woman's plea. How many times have I been found guilty of preaching in this pulpit that Jesus will never ignore a plea? Well, he did. He ignored a heartfelt plea from this woman. He didn't say a word to her. You know, and his disciples came, of course, and uh, they were prejudiced up to their eyeballs. They said, in urgent saying, send her away, for she's crying after us. Get rid of her. And then he answered and said, he will change of heart perhaps. I, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Isn't they really strange words for Jesus to say? Go away. You're not a Jew. I haven't come for you. Didn't he say to the woman in Samaria, salvation is of the Jews. You, you worship what you don't know we worship what we know because salvation is of the Jews you know and Jesus is, is very it's very strange to think of him as putting people down putting people in their place and not even speaking to them and then she came and worshipped him saying Lord help me and he answered and said to her it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs and then she comes back with that uh, wonderful phrase that melted the heart of God. Yes, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the children's table. You know, and that melted the Lord because faith. Faith was it. She said, I've never seen such faith. I've never seen such faith. And of course, her daughter was healed. But you know, the principle is there. It's there with the disciples. It's there with Jesus. It's here with Paul. The little phrase in Romans 1.16 is not a throwaway remark but it's a very important issue and to me as I've studied it it goes right to the heart of God's plan of eternal salvation for all those who believe. Now I wonder what you think when you read it. Listen to it again. For the Jew first, we're talking about the gospel for the Jew first and also for the Gentile or for the Greek it says there no one at first glance I suppose it could seem to you seem to me that this is a put down for us Gentiles we didn't come first we weren't a priority and um, 
the thought that salvation was for the Jews and um, because in, in a big way they refused it or they rejected it God looked around and decided to include the Gentiles now you can see that a little bit with Paul Paul was called to preach the gospel to the Jews and uh, because they rejected it he, he said at one point that he was going, not at this point when he wrote this book it wasn't then, it was later uh, he turned around and says well you've had your chance I'm going to go down and talk to the Gentiles about it. You know, I, I don't know about how you feel about that, uh, but, you know, um, God decided, okay then, I can't have these, so I love you. You know, and the thought that God chose the Jews, and we Gentiles were included by the skin of our teeth. You know, and I, I'm going to be honest, I know grace is grace, and I know that my father used to say, that he didn't mind playing second fiddle as long as he was in the band. That was one of his favourite sayings. But I don't know about playing second fiddle. Being God's afterthought, or his second thought, doesn't do much for my spiritual self-esteem. I'm going to be honest with it. Faith, grace is grace, and I know it's wonderful. And um, I am glad I'm in. But to be a second thought doesn't do a lot for me. You know, are the Jews more important to God than me and you am I second rate you know and um, many years ago 1998 actually a young uh, pastor preached in this pulpit on a Thursday night from the epistle of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 and um, he gave me his notes and I've looked at them today and they explained everything to me. I'm so grateful to him, whoever he was. And this is what I, this is what Paul writes. Therefore, remember, and he's talking to us as Gentiles, that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, were called uncircumcision by what is so-called the circumcision made by flesh in the hands. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross. Now what I would like to do tonight is, to, is take some thoughts from that passage of scripture uh, to explain the passage that we are looking at. And I want us to see tonight why there is a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. Because obviously there is because it was to them first and then to us I want us then to see what that distinction really is and then I want us to see how that distinction is resolved you know the first thing I want us to notice straight away is what Paul didn't say didn't Paul didn't say to the Jew especially did he he didn't say to the Jew first and foremost he didn't say to the Jew because he is a Jew. In other words, this division isn't about priority or status. This division that we are looking at tonight is simply chronological. Chronological. You know, reading the passage in Ephesians 2, you can really feel the pride of the Jews. That is, here they are, they are the circumcision. And they think a lot of themselves. And they looked down their noses at the Gentiles and referred to them very often, as did Jesus, as dogs. Little dogs. You can feel the pride of the Jews. We are the circumcision, whereas you are the uncircumcision. You are, you are outside of this great provision. It's simply for us. You know, I'm reminded of the sketch of the two Ronnies, uh, which is a classic sketch. Uh, when they, with John Cleese, they stood in the line. I, I know you can remember, it's been on over Christmas. You've got John Cleese, the tall guy, with a bowler hat. And then you've got Ronnie Barker, the middle one, who has a white collar. And then you've got Ronnie Corbett, who is the small one. And he's got a blue collar. And John Cleese says, I'm upper class. And I look down on him because he's middle class. And then 
uh, Ronnie Barker says, I'm middle class and I look down on him because he's working class. And then Ronnie Corbett says, I'm working class and I look, look up to them and there was this division of class. You know, that's what I feel when I read uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11 because that's exactly what it is or what it seems or what it has become this division between us and the Jews you know but for me we can see that the division has nothing at all to do with class or standing position or priority or in any essence, in any way whatsoever it is chronological in essence and it's nothing to do with privilege as such. Now, that's one way of looking at it. We could think, well, uh, the Jew is higher than us, better than us, more, has more of a priority, more of a pull with God than us. But I don't want us to, re- I don't want us to think about it. That's not right. But then on the other hand, we could look at it. And uh, we could look at this division and say, well, perhaps the Jews thought that they didn't need to be saved. They didn't need to be saved. Because they could look back and say, well, look, we've got the law, we've got the prophets, we've got the, um, the oracles of God, we've got all these great oracles <coughs> of God, and we've been ushered into his, into his plan. We don't, you know, and you'll be surprised. And I, in, the, in my years of talking to people, I've been surprised how many Christians think that Jews don't have to be saved. Because they're Jews. You know, I was talking to uh, my own uncle, and he told me that. He said, they don't have to be saved, they're Jews. And I thought, no, that's wrong. But you see, there is um, a feeling in Christianity, and especially in the Jewish uh, religion, that they don't need this thing called salvation because they are the chosen people, and because they are God's precious or peculiar people, and therefore, they don't need it. You Gentiles, you need it. You've got to, you've got to find salvation from somewhere. Look at what you're doing. Look at who you are. You know what we probably said it, if not thought it, that when we see someone doing something, you know, untoward, you know, if anyone needs salvation, he does. But that's not true, is it? Because we all need salvation. As much as he does. And when we turn our sort of gaze onto uh, the Jews, they need salvation as much as we do. And therefore, when we see this passage of Scripture, we could think, well, this is an insult or a wake-up call to the Jews. For far from being, um, it, it being unnecessary, you need to be saved the same as us. In fact, Paul says, to you first. Which possibly means you need it more than we do. So you can, I don't know how you look at the verse, but do you look at it as a put down to the Jews? Or do you look at it as a put down to the Gentiles? That's the, the sort of the quandary that you could have when you look at this passage of Scripture. But Paul says in Ephesians 4 this time, he says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all, through you all, and in you all. Now that's Paul's sort of loose description of the ultimate purpose of God. In, in Ephesians 1, uh, the purpose is stated that the, in the fullness of time, God is going to bring all things under the headship of Christ. He is going to rule, He's going to be all in all. So there is this desire in God to bring a group of people together with no distinction who become the church of Christ or the bride of Christ uh, or the, the, the people that are going to populate eternity with him. And notice in that passage it's one. It's not two. It's one. One body, one church, one faith, one baptism, one Lord who is over all. No, that's the ultimate desire of God. That we come under Jesus Christ, our Lord. So there's no priority in these. The priority is in Him. 
Now I want you to, <coughs> I want to whisk you back to Noah. Um, just as he steps out of the ark, him and seven other people, they are the only people on the planet. And God gives Noah the same mandate as he gave to Adam. Remember when Adam and Eve stood before God, he said, I want you to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. Well, of course, the earth now, 1,500 years later, only had seven, eight people on it. And God said exactly the same to them. Be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You know what? It's a mandate that we all um, adhere to. You know, we all get it. We take it on board and uh, the world began to grow again. And hundreds of years down the line, we have millions of people on the earth again. Millions of people. But then I wanted to go on a little bit further from there to a city that is being built. And right in the middle of it, there's this tall tower. And that city was about to become called the Tower Babel. Because it's where God gave languages to the people, confused their languages. You see what happened? God came down and he saw a mass of people, all with the same language, all with the same aim. And their aim was to do away with God, to do away with the need of him. They wanted to build a tower into heaven itself. So that if God flooded the world again, there would be a place of survival. We'll get away with from God, we'll do away with Him, and we'll get on with our own thing. You know what? He saw a mass of people with the same language and the same aim. Now then, His ultimate goal is to gather a group of people together. Now His problem, His mission, was to reach that mass of people with his grace and his love they all had one language and they all had one aim but he wanted to reach them with his grace how does he do it now to me the thing to do is to say well look let's speak to them in their language no, what he did he confused their languages and in doing so he invented nations because every people group who could understand each other gathered together and went off and they went off and they went off and all of a sudden the world began to be populated and they've gone to the ends of the earth because language barriers stopped them intermingling with each other you know and of course that's breaking down today listen to what uh, the, the reason why he did that uh, and the Lord said indeed the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do they begin to build a tower to get rid of me now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. In other words, they'll be able to get on with life and destroy themselves quicker than we, go, than, we, than we are because the language barrier is there. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth. He created nations. In other words, he split everybody up. He split everybody up. No, I, it, I thought it would have been better to get everybody together. And the world at large today thinks that if we can get rid of our language barriers, we can get on better. No, what are we looking for today? We're looking for um, computers that can network so we can get information from over there. We can get information from over there. We can pool our information. We can do all this and do all that. And if we can get together as one, just how much powerful we'll be, how more educated we'll be, we'll be better at health. We'll better be better at the environment. We'll be better with relationships. Everything is going to be better if we get together. But God says, no, better off if you get apart. You get apart. And that's what he did. That's why globalization is not God's purpose. That's why I'm not a lover of the European Union and, and, and all the things that are going on to try and bring us together. Because when we come together, what we will do is try to get rid of God and build things that will destroy us. So separation was the key. You know, and um, he designed these nations. So then the, the next part of the plan is, well, how is he going to reach all these different nations? Hasn't he made it harder for himself, for himself in separating us into nations? Well, how is he going to do it? Well, the answer, strangely enough, lays in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And if you go to the Sermon on the Mount, the very first verse gives us a principle that God has used all through history. Remember when it says there, and seeing the multitudes, here we are, the multitudes. How am I going to reach the multitudes? How God Christ reached the multitudes by, was by turning his back on them. This is what it says, seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain from them. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. You see, to reach a multitude, he chose a small group. A small group that he could teach, that he could manage. And then he sent them into the multitude. That's what he did. You can see the principle again in the the feeding of the 5,000. No, there are 5,000, perhaps even 10,000 people sitting down. How is he going to feed them? There's nothing. I got nothing. All I got is 12 disciples and a pack lunch. So with one source and 12 servants, he fed 12,000 people. One source, bread and fish, 12 servants, he fed a lot. And that's how he did it. He gets a little group, teaches them, equips them, and sends them out. That's how he does it. We can see that on the day of Pentecost, or the, the, the week before Pentecost, when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, uh, and he says, look, he got these 12 little people, or 11 then, and he says, look, I want you to go, wait until you've been endowed with power from an eye. So the message is there, the power is there, the equipment is there. He said, and then I want you, 11, to go out. I want you to go to Jerusalem, I want you to go to Samaria, I want you to go to uh, the uttermost parts of the earth. What has he done? He's reached the masses by equipping a group with one resource. So there's a source, there's a group of servants, and there's a multitude. And that's how God works. You know, and then on the day of Pentecost, of course, 120 people was filled with the Spirit. Do you know they were all Jews? They were, there wasn't one Gentile there, they were all Jews. And those Jews went into the world, and the Bible says they turned the world upside down. They went into every nation. You know, and today the gospel has reached every nation on the planet. Why? Because 120 Jews from with the resources of heaven has reached out into all the world. That was God's plan. That's the way he, was, he planned to do it. And when you think about it, here we are in this massive church that we belong to. You know, there's teams of people that come in week in and week out and there are four of us who lead it. There's a big crowd and there's a small crowd. And that's how the world works. That's exactly how the world works. There is a, a, a limited few who are chosen to minister to the masses. And that's how God has, um, uh, has planned this. To reach the multitudes, he chooses a group. You know, and um, I would say that yes, there is a privilege in serving Jesus. So these Jews are a very privileged people. And, um, but the main thrust of the choice of the Jews and the main thrust of the choice of choosing the twelve wasn't to put you on a higher pedestal than the rest of the people. In fact, Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles and lord it over people. Now, that's not why I've called you. I've called you to minister to them. In fact, he says, the greatest is the servant of all. So he wants us to be servants in the word. You know, we know you beyond the the valley, there's 80,000 people here. There's 11 of us here today, the same number that was on the Mount of Olives when Jesus went to heaven. And that 11, he said, I want you to go out into all the world. Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, yet the most parts of the world. 11. There's 11. There's millions of them. I want you 11 to turn the world upside down. And that's what they did. But you see, it wasn't giving them a position. It was giving them a ministry. A ministry to reach. To reach people with the message of the gospel. And that's, uh, that's the intention. You know, and of course that. So what does he do? Well, let's go on a little bit from, um, 
from Babel to the next chapter, the very next chapter, and who does he choose? He chooses Abraham. Tells him to get out of his country, go to a place where I have called, where I will, where I will show you, and there you will become a family that will bless all the nations of the world. One man. He chose one man to bring blessing to the world. See, can, you see how he, can you see the principle that he is working on? One man in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now then, this choice of Abraham, when you look at it and think about it, it has two purposes. Two pur- why did he choose the Jews? That's what I'm trying to get at. Why has he chosen the Jews? Because of course Abraham wasn't a Jew, but he's become the, the father of the Israelites. Why has he chosen the Jews? Why were they first? You know, and the choice is two, to fulfill two purposes. First, this is how God would enter into the human race. And so we could call this the theological uh, purpose of choosing Abraham. You see, Jesus was a human being. And he had to enter into the human race in exactly the same way as me and you. There is no difference at all. He came through a woman. I know there was a difference in the conception, but as far as the, um, the mechanics of it all was, he came like you and me. But you see, Jesus, for him to be who he was, had to have a pedigree. He had to have a lineage. He had to have, you had to have a lineage that could be traced. And when you read the scriptures, especially Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, you will notice that Jesus' lineage is put there uh, for us to peruse. You know, it's not put there for us to think, I hope nobody asks me to read that on a Sunday morning. Because it's difficult reading. But you know, what it does is root it, roots the Messiah into humanity. You know, and three of the people that are mentioned there are very important. Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Abraham was the one chosen. Isaac was his son. Jacob was his son. Now, if it was here on Wednesday, Tuesday, you would know, you would know that that should have been Esau. But he sold his birthright for a, a bowl of red stew or soup. Right? That's what he did. So he lost out. So he's not in any way involved in all this. But Jacob, the twister, who I've got a problem with, he is there. But you see, what it has done, it has given uh, Jesus a lineage. A lineage. So we know where he's come from. We know what type of people he belongs to. And we can check it. We can check it. We can't do that now, of course. The only way we can do that now is through the scriptures. There are no written records of Jesus' lineage anywhere else outside the, uh, the Bible because where they were kept was the temple. And on AD 70, the Romans came and burnt it. So if Jesus came today for the Jews, they wouldn't be able to check his lineage. Because it doesn't exist anymore. That's why Jesus had to come before AD 70. So we can thank God that he sent him before AD 70. Because now we can look at the Old Testament and see exactly where he's come from. So that's one thing. That's one thing. But if you remember when we were doing Hebrews, we saw that the Christ had to follow a pattern. Follow a pattern. A pattern of priesthood. So what did God do? He formed a priesthood. He formed a sacrificial system. And he gave them the law. Now this wasn't designed to make Israel better. But it was designed to give a blueprint for the Messiah. Now if Jesus had come through the Arabs, there would have been no blueprint. If he had come through the Australians, there would have been no blueprint. If he had come through Britain, he would have been no blueprint. But he came through Israel. And because Israel, God had formed these things, the law in particular, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system, when Christ came, he became these things. He superseded the law. He said, I've come not, I, haven't, he, I haven't come to uh, destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And here he is, he's the one who has fulfilled the law. And here we are tonight, free from the law. Amen. Because Christ has come. 
And he's taken the law and fulfilled it in every detail upon, uh, in, in the sight of his father and paid for every misdemeanor on the cross. So the law is fulfilled. That's why we are free from the law. That's why we can't get to heaven by keeping the law because Jesus already kept it for us. So the law was there. There was no law anywhere else. But in Israel there was law. Sacrificial sacrifices. You know what, what on earth do we want to read Leviticus for? You know, it's, it is the most complicated, confusing, miserable book you could ever pick up and read. Except for the fact that everything in there has been fulfilled by Jesus. Everything has been fulfilled by Jesus. He has superseded it. And of course then there's a priesthood. We've got the priesthood. What is a priest? He's someone who represents people before God. Now they were rather miserable as priests. But Jesus is the high priest who has come and superseded on them and brought to us, as if you can remember, it's difficult to go into it in a, now at this point, but he brought us a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek was a priest outside the faith, outside the Jewish nation. Therefore, he is, Christ is the priest for the world. Now that's a bit complicated, I know, but you know, just trust me on that. Or try and remember how we did it in Ephesians. And God said about putting all these things in place in Israel, the giving of the law, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, with the purpose that when Christ come, he would supersede it. And we would be able to say, well look, this is what he is. He's a priest. This is what he is. He's the sacrifice for our sins. This is what he is. He is the great law keeper. So there we have the theological purpose for God choosing the Jews. Because within that little nation, God has set forth his son. And he's explained him and described him in such a way that when he came, we knew him. And when he did the things that he did, we are grateful that he ever came in the first place. But of course, there's also an historic purpose for God choosing the Jews. Because what God wanted the Jews to be was a mirror image of him upon the earth. In Ezekiel chapter 5, it says, look, the Lord says, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and all the countries all around her. In other words, she was God's shop window to the world. This is what I want you to be, Israel. I want you to honor me and serve me with a single eye and a single heart. I want you to follow me in the way that I have told you. And that's what the law is about. That's what the prophets were there for. To bring the people of Israel into line. So that the world outside, when they looked at Israel, they could think, wow, what a way to live. What a way to live. No, they don't put their children in the fire to sacrifice. They don't have prostitutes in their temples. They are moral and upright and righteous and they serve one God. And look how God prospers them. Because whenever that happened in Israel, the rain would come and the crops would grow. But of course, whenever it didn't happen, the famine would come. And if we maybe go to the book of Ruth, which is something else that we did on, uh, on a Tuesday night, you find Jews, what do they do? Leaving the provision of God and going down to places like Moab. You know, when you've got these Moabites thinking, how on earth are you? Where's your God? Why isn't he provided? How are you finding refuge in the things of the world when God is there with everything you need? You know, and of course we can turn that round to the church. Because now we are God's shop window to the world. And when we go to Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, we can see that we are now the holy nation, the peculiar people, the chosen generation. You know, we are, we are it now. The window in the world. Now when you look at the Jewish record of history, you'll find that they messed up completely. In fact, God said at one point, they are worse than the people they're trying to impress. And he was really disappointed that the Jews didn't live up to their historic purpose. They failed to live up to the responsibility of reaching the world. And the reason being is they saw the privilege of being chosen and forgot about the responsibility. 
of being chosen. They saw that they realized the privilege and forgot the responsibility. And that's what brings us back to this verse in chapter 2 of Ephesians. Therefore remember, you once Gentiles in the flesh were called uncircumcision by the circumcision. In other words, we have the privilege of knowing God and you are nothing. And that's where they came to at the end. Pride had got the better of them and pride had built, rather than built a bridge, had built a barrier to the Gentiles. And when Christ came to the earth, that was the case. And when Paul preached here, that was the case. That there was a barrier built rather than a bridge. Isn't it, isn't it awful? That the plan of God has been sort of put on hold because men saw the privilege and didn't accept the responsibility. They'd forgotten. They'd forgotten that they were chosen by God, not because they were bigger or better or holier than the other nations but in grace they were chosen to reach the other nations and woe betide any church that sees itself aloof from the world and walks about with an air of superiority and holier than thou because God has chosen us and he's put his spirit on us and he's given us the word and they are out there in the world they are rejecting him you know, and here we are walking down the street with our heads in the air. When all the time he wants us to build a bridge, not a barrier. A bridge, not a barrier. Pride. I got to, you know, when, when God promised Abraham, all the nations in the earth will be blessed because of you. Up until this point, that wasn't true. That wasn't true. The Jew came first then the Gentile you know and even when the Messiah did come you know and even all their antics he still came there's still a lineage that goes right from Adam through Abraham through David down to Jesus and he came 2,000 years ago and when he actually arrived they failed to recognize him and they rejected him such is the, uh, the misery of this nation but he did come. You know, whether these, the Jews lived up to their responsibility or not, God did send his son into the world to save sinners. He did come. You know, and it's there in Ephesians 2. It tells us how God resolved the distinction between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, we know why there's a distinction now. It was... Theological, theological in that God had to bring his son through a tribe and that he had to bring the sacrifices and the law and, uh, and everything into being. So there's the theological side. They were there to bless the world with this wonderful gospel. The historical side was that they were to there to show the world who God was. But they, because of pride, they built a barrier rather than a bridge. How did God uh, get rid of that? But look at this. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off. Who's that? That's us. Mm. Paul says, you've been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. Brought near. That doesn't mean being saved. That means brought into the vicinity. Brought into the vicinity by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one, who, the Jew and the Gentile, he's brought one. He's broken down the middle wall of petition. What is the middle wall of petition? The law, the sacrifices, the priesthood. That the Jews thought separated them from the world, when all the time Christ came and superseded their, them things and opened the gospel out to everyone. So now the Jews had no mission. It was the gospel that was the mission. Right? It's the gospel. And the middle wall of separation had been brought down. I've been abolished it, it says, in his flesh. Abolished the enmity that the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. So whether you're a Gentile or you're a Jew, it makes no difference. It's now the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ, the blood of Christ. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, well, through the cross. So everything is being replaced. 
We have the body of Christ. We have the blood of Christ. We have the cross of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you. And this is it. He came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's us. And to those who were near. That's the Jews. So the same gospel that brought us into salvation was the same gospel that brought Jews into salvation. See, they'd missed their opportunity of blessing the nations of the world. The only way that they bless the nations of the world is by bringing in Messiah. Now the Messiah is the one who blesses the nations in the world because he has brought salvation not only to the Jews, the near ones, but to those who are afar off as well. Because the last bit says, for through him, not them, through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. You know, in this passage, as I've said, there's reference to the blood of Christ, the flesh of Christ, the body of Christ, and the cross of Christ. And in those words, we have the perfect picture of what Calvary has stood for. The perfect Lamb of God gave up his life upon the cross as his body was broken and his blood was shed in order to present God the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the broken law of God that superseded the law, the sacrificial system and having presented the sacrifice to his Father in heaven on resurrection morning, he has superseded the priesthood. So all that has been abolished. So the reason why they are first is gone. They are no longer in priority or chronological order. Now they are sinners the same as you and I. They need a saviour. They need the gospel. They need the blood of Christ to cleanse them from all unrighteousness and bring them into a living relationship with God. What did they say to Christ once? We are children of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. And Jesus said these words. God could raise up those stones to be children of Abraham. It's not children of Abraham anymore. It's those who respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile. Everything else has been superseded, has been abolished, has been moved on into a new era when the gospel of Jesus Christ is the means of salvation for all who believe. Now for us, he is our sacrifice. For us, he is our great high priest. He represents us before God. For us, he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He reigns and rules and has authority and sovereignty over our lives. But who are we worshipping? We worship in God through Jesus Christ. And from what he has done for us upon the cross. And that he might reconcile them both to God. In one body, through the cross. Having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. And to you who are near. For through him we both have access. By one spirit to the Father. Yes there is. A theological reason why the Jews came first. Yes there was an historical reason why the Jews came first. But do you know for us. All those things have been fulfilled in the advent of Jesus. The life that he lived which was perfect before God. The sacrifice that he made for us upon that cross. And now it makes no difference. It makes no difference whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Christ is the way, the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. You know, you can't point to Abraham or to Isaac and to Jacob. You can't point to your pedigree. You know, and many people do. And we can't be sort of um, beaten down because we're not a part of that great set. No, we are human beings, sinners. And yet Christ came to die for sinners. Mm. It's never said he came to die for Jews. He never said that he went to the cross for Jews. Shed his blood for Jews. No, he died for sin. Sinners. And do you know that levels us all? Because you see, if you could to get rid of pride, all you've got to do is level people out. Level people out. And these Jews who thought they were up there, Paul goes on to tell us in chapter 3, 
Well, in, in, in fact, for the next two chapters, he tells us how bad we all are. You know, they're not looking forward to that, to be honest. It's Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3 all over again. This is how bad we all are. Gentiles, this is how bad you are. Moralizers, this is how bad you are. Jews, this is how bad you are. And in fact, I think they are worse <laughs> when you read it. But you see, it's now not position or pedigree. It's now we are sinners. And we need a saviour because he has fulfilled all that. You know this phrase in no way puts us in an inferior position. But it does spell out afresh the responsibility that comes with the privilege of serving God. And the example of the failure of Israel, what they what God wanted them to be, is sure to be a stimulus to us. I don't want to find myself put to one side because God can trust them over there but he can't trust me wouldn't that be awful wouldn't it be awful if he couldn't trust this church to be what he wants us to be to be the window the, the, the God shop window or the bearer of the message it would be awful if he passed over us if he passed over us and blessed someone else you know that happens very often a church is established in a town and it loses its way and doesn't go out into the world and preach the gospel. And then this little church sort of starts and they start to minister into different situations and they grow. And this church dies. We've seen it in the Rhonda over the last 50, 60 years. Our established churches are now dead. And these little churches that grew up because they, God passed over them He's used these. And I pray that that would never be the case in Emmanuel Christian Fellowship. That we would always want to be uh, ministering the word of God to others. Preaching and being a witness and living the life that draws people uh, to him rather than uh, sort of gets them away from him. You know, and I suppose that has to be the stimulus in our desire to bring glory to God in our own day. You know, there's a great lesson here, and I hope I've, you know, I've been, I've got to be honest with you, I haven't felt like studying all day today, and in fact I slept all afternoon, and I, I haven't been able to sort of concentrate an awful lot, and I was a bit concerned coming tonight, uh, that I would be talking through my heart, like, you know, type of thing, and no one would be able to understand what I've said, but I pray that tonight we've seen something, uh, something important, and I pray that the you know, Holy Spirit can untangle all the words and and put it into our hearts in a way that would bless us and strengthen us and use us and sort of stimulate us to be what he wants us to be for his honour and for his glory. Amen.